Edwin, those words aren't in the Bible. Well, they're my Bible. They're in my Bible. Okay, Quentin. <laughs> when the aliens come and find Edwin's Bible, it will have the words in it a lot. A lot. Exactly. Welcome, Secret Movie Clubbers, to Secret Movie Club Podcast 150. It is an extravaganza today. We are doing Bill and Ted's Bogus Journey and sequels that are better than the original. And we have an all-star cast with us. Who's with us today? Hi, I'm AJ. I'm a cancer. <laughs> Who else? Uh, I'm Anne Mortensen-Agnew. I'm an animation writer, and I'm a Virgo sun and Aries moon. What's your What's your Chinese zodiac? I'm a ram, and I think my element is like an earth ram, but I was born in 1991, so anybody who knows the Chinese zodiac better than I do will know my element. Boom. What's your Chinese zodiac, AJ? I'm a horse. Nice. Oh, what's up? It's Daniel. I can't believe we're a hundred and wherever many things in, and I still don't have an intro that is remotely cognitive. Give yourself a hip-hop name, Diot. When I was a youngster in elementary school, I used to make custom comics under the handle Dot Comics. Boom. Dot Comics in the house. Now OTT's become a tech and startup word, and it's really made my Google history analytics, uh, or my Google analytics a problem. Hey gamers, it's me, Carnal Cruz, the people's champion. Low energy Connor today, here with a most excellent man, Edwin Gomez. Ah, hello, America. It's another day, dog day land, doing another damn podcast. Connor's apartment turned into a like hellish labyrinth, like Bogus Journey, right, Connor? Yeah, I couldn't open my front door last night, so it was great. Has Batman been replaced by an evil robot of himself? Yep, still sleeping, though. <laughs> oh, okay. nice. So that's how you know it's working. I love, I love playing in this space. And uh, <laughs> I am Craig, the founder, programmer, Secret Movie Club. By the time you hear this podcast tonight, we are going to be doing Man with a Movie Camera, an amazing Ziga Vertov a silent film with a live original score by touring group Montopolis. It's actually selling pretty well. Uh, we may have tickets when you hear this. We may not. It's hard to tell right now. We're a few weeks out from recording. Saturday, we're doing Shadow of a Doubt and Saboteur, our next Hitchcock double. Shadow of a Doubt is one of my all-time favorite Hitchcocks, and it's actually Hitchcock's Hitchcock. It's his personal favorite of everything he ever did. And then next Wednesday, we're doing Ghost World with Scarlett Johansson and Thora Birch, snarkily remarking on late 90s, early aughts culture, and Jim Jarmusch's Mystery Train on 35. Uh, Marina Sakamoto, it's her birthday, birthday screening. Happy birthday, Marina we wish you all the best. And our band, Shunken, coming out, dropping a new album soon. And then maybe the uh, crown jewel of the week in some ways, both on 35. It is already in the booth. Paramount gave us their archive David Lynch Elephant Man print. And we got the straight story on 35 as well from Disney. Two little scene David Lynch movies that are amazing. He has never made a bad movie. You can put Lynch with Kubrick. Minus Fear and Desire, maybe. And even Fear and Desire is not bad. It's just, like, kind of okay. Anyway, uh, Straight Story, Elephant Man, come join us. As always, write us at community at secretmovieclub.com. Check out everything we're doing at secretmovieclub.com. Get your tickets at Eventbrite. I got so little sleep last night, and I drank coffee. I don't know why I'm wired like this, but that's what you guys get today. I guess it's like the universe balancing out Connor's low energy. For some reason, I got high energy today. I did. I remembered how I was going to introduce Edwin. What I thought of last night, which was I was going to say he was non, 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 non bogus. <laughs> Whoa, Edwin, what does that mean? I don't know, man. <laughs> 
We are talking about Bill and Ted's bogus journey today, the sequel to the much beloved Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure starring Keanu Reeves and Alex Winters as two bumbling yet sincere and lovable high school seniors in San Dimas, California, who learned that their band Wild Stallions will one day play a rock song that will bring utopia to the world but only if they can get a A-plus on their final history report. It was a surprise sleeper hit. Everybody loved it. And so naturally the studio said, okay, we want a sequel, but they wanted more of the same. But the writers, uh, Ed Solomon and Chris Matheson and Keanu Reeves and Alex uh, Winters did not want to just copy and paste. So the writers wrote a script called Bill and Ted Go to Hell. And Keanu Reeves and Alex Winters were like, that's the one we want to make. We want to make the one where we die, where we meet death where androids uh, replace us and where it's like so much weird stuff happens the movie was dropped in 1991 when Keanu was already a star actually he'd already made point break he was uh, already on his way but he had a lot of love for this property and they would come back like 30 years later and make Bill and Ted's face the music but we're not talking about that now uh, this movie landed and everyone was utterly confused uh, this was not Bill and Ted's excellent adventure it was really weird it was kind of unsettling it was was very funny, but in a very strange way. But over time, a lot of people have come to love it and view it as uh, the greatest of the three. And this is a thing that kind of happens with a lot of trilogies. It's really interesting in sequels. You know, a great example is Empire Strikes Back. Totally different thing. But at the time, everyone was like, oh, Empire's kind of weird. <laughs> it's not Star Wars. And then over time, most people now agree that Empire is the best Star Wars movie of like all of them, of all, how many? Nine, I guess, in the official canon. One hundred million Star Wars movies. Yeah, and properties, totally. And, you know, we can go on and on and on. Godfather 2 is often held up as potentially being better than Godfather 1, blah, blah, blah. But let's get to it. So this is my first time the, the screening was seeing Bogus Journey the whole way through. Uh, like, I had seen um, bits of it on YouTube and stuff before. I... Loved it. It feels weird to compare it almost to Bill and Ted 1 because uh, Excellent Adventure is like fairly straightforward. They get a time machine and they go back in time to find these historical figures to like complete their objective at the start of the movie. What if these stoner surfer dudes interacted with historical figures and that's basically the first movie yeah the pitch is the pitch is easy yeah exactly like that is the movie the whole way through and it's it's really good and then bogus journey is just it's almost like like an improv game like it's it, they just yes and through the whole movie and it is so weird and so so funny and could you explain that just for our audience who aren't uh, steeped in improv because that's such an important concept what is yes and so yes and is in improv is that um whatever somebody says or does you you do not go back and contradict it. You just kind of build off of what people do. Uh, so it, when you yes and you're, you accept that somebody has said something or established a premise or done an action, and then you build off of it with no going back or no contradiction. So, uh, you know, Bill and Ted's bogus journey is them just like, saying, okay, and then this will happen, and then this will happen, and then this will happen, and just going on an extremely weird little, you know, adventure. I didn't even mention unit. Station. 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 Sorry, station is, a, sorry, this, like, two twin alien thing they meet that also forms an adult alien thing that joins the band. Yeah, it, it really feels like that's another, like, yes, end thing. Like, oh, and then they go to hell, and then they go to heaven, and then they meet God, and then they meet the greatest engineer in the world. 
uh, and that engineer is an alien. It's two aliens that turn into one big alien. Okay, no, like all the ideas are in the movie, which I, I loved. What if the Grim Reaper was deeply insecure? Yeah, what if the Grim Reaper really just needed to get friends? As Connor said, sort of the MVP of the movie is William Sadler, character and action star actor William Sadler plays death in the movie. So And they funny. make the really interesting decision, as Connor said, like a really great character decision where he's kind of competitive and insecure and needy. It's such a weird decision, but it's hilarious. Because in the first half of the movie, he's playing it more straight as death, but then they beat him in these games. And I think it's funny that all of the games they went at, for the most part, are all kind of luck-based. <laughs> instead of in Seventh Seal, where it's chess, they're playing Battleship and Twister. After that point, the rest of the movie, he just kind of hangs out with them and is just kind of desperate to be validated and be their friend and be recognized. And when they do a performance later, he seems really hungry for the spot. Spotlight. He has like a little little rhyme he comes out and does when he's like on the bass or whatever. A little rap. <laughs> I honestly haven't seen that movie probably since it came out. And when it did come out, I saw it probably 12,000 times. It was a, a, definitely a favorite of mine. My friend had it on Laserdisc, his dad. Anyway, it was great. I feel like that's what a sequel should do. Take the basic concept and just expand upon it, whereas a lot of uh, sequels will just kind of either rehash or just take it in a completely different direction. I just remember really liking this one and, and liking the fact that they really just explored the characters and added some weird androids and different versions of them and aliens as opposed to just the historical figures. And it's interesting what you said. You're like, I'm trying to think of all of the sequels and one of the things that often happens and it, a lot of times it doesn't work, is everyone tries to make the dark sequel, which is sort of interesting. Like uh, you think of Back to the Future 2, which I'm actually a huge fan of. It definitely is trying to be the strange dark sequel to maybe Back to the Future 1, sort of more sunny. And Empire's definitely darker, Two Towers, although that was part of a trilogy, like a book thing. It is interesting to see decisions that get made. Comedy sequels are especially pretty bad, typically. They're typically just a sort of gratuitous repetition of, I think about like Ghostbusters 2, which isn't terrible and has a lot of good stuff with the, I like the painting stuff. And clutched her heart. I guess, sorry to interrupt, but like uh, to get into the other topic, I wouldn't say that Ghostbusters 2 is necessarily a better movie than Ghostbusters one because Ghostbusters 1 has an incredibly tight script like you know I don't need to sell you on Ghostbusters 1 being good I like Ghostbusters 2 way more though it's been a minute since I revisited it I mean it hasn't been that long since I revisited it my point being that comedy sequels like maybe Zoolander 2 is a good example it's like half of the same bits and then half just kind of uh, high-fiving yourself for like, isn't it, isn't it so fun that we're doing this again? This movie doesn't do any of that. And to the degree that it does any bits, again, it's all more like a character stuff in terms of the way they talk. They actually, to your point, Connor, they actually do some things that call back to the first movie that are really funny. Uh, specifically, Missy, yeah. who they went yeah. to high school with, was married to Bill's dad in the first movie, who's some kind of like Jeff Daniels-like professor. And then for no apparent reason, she divorces him and marries Ted's dad in the second film. And then we see like the final joke of the movie is that like she has divorced Ted's dad to marry the villain of the movie. Uh, you know, Bill and Ted, you know, excellent adventure. I... I don't consider it a stoner movie at all, unless they're smoking pot or weed. They're not stoner. They're just dudes in the valley, man. I love Alexa the Adventure. It's a great picture. Funny movie. You know, 80s, man. Time travel. 
very groovy. Uh, I don't like Bogus Joey. I don't like it at all. I don't think it's superior at all. I, I think it's just there. Um, it was not funny when I saw it. Uh, when was that? Uh, seven, eight years ago when I saw it. Have you ever watched, rewatched a movie after that amount of time and, and liked it differently or better? Uh, no, because I, I feel like I have the same opinion on it. I don't think I would like it at all. I think you should because I actually first watched Bill and Ted 1 when I was about 17. And it was a movie that I, as I was watching, I was like, I get it. I laughed twice the first time I watched Bill and Ted 1. Yeah, here's the thing, though. For, for Bogus Journey, the, the only thing that made me laugh was the trailer for the movie. It, it, it was so better and I liked it a lot more instead of the actual movie. But other than that, even, I, I even watched the third one. I thought the third one was like, okay. It's not great, but it was okay. I, I, I love the two daughters, though. The two daughters were, like, awesome. I wish it, w- it would have been that movie. But, you know, we never got that. But it's okay. But, uh, you know, it's, uh, it's a pretty good picture. Again, not a stoner movie because they're not smoking weed. They're just dudes in the valley, man. Having not, not being terribly well-versed in the realm of stoner movies, I feel like characters smoking, you know, uh, weed on screen is doesn't feel like a prerequisite for it being labeled that, you know? I have to agree. I mean, like, I'm not big into stoner movies. I do have some extensive knowledge in uh, being a stoner. Uh, not that I am anymore, but I, I was in a past life. I feel like with Bill and Ted especially, they were definitely high the whole movie like the characters were definitely high like just because they don't smoke weed on screen doesn't mean they weren't it's like in old movies when they call a guy a florist and it's like you you know what they mean he's a confirmed bachelor it's just kind of the same thing with bill and ted they don't say it eh. or maybe they're just like that <laughs> I, I, honestly there is part of it that is funnier if they truly are just like that <laughs> at some point i'll revisit bogus journey but it's not gonna be anytime soon I just watched the first one a lot more because the first one is like way funnier. And remember how he was at the theater and he could have just sat there and watched it with us to do like good prep. Yeah. A 90 minute film. And instead he just wandered around the lobby bumping into walls yeah. and, and smoking pot on 420 because, you know, it's 420. man. I, I had to do my civic duty. But did anyone else uh, smoke pot? No. No, not you, not even you, Craig. Yeah, can everyone uh, record themselves here on this thing? No one on this podcast has ever smoked weed before, Edwin. Not not even once. I was mainly pointing at Craig, who didn't smoke on that day. I'm just saying. The fuck is that? It's the weed police. That's the movie gods being like, hey, this is off mic stuff. That's the sign that I want to talk. <laughs> Uh, so I will just throw in here. It, it, I um, haven't said my opinions on oh, it. Oh, well, yeah, then Connor, go. go. Connor, yeah. Go. yeah. I actually saw this movie first when I was a kid. Pizza Hut did a thing. I think it was Pizza Hut where they included DVDs with pizzas for a minute. And I remember getting this and that's how I watched it. It was a, a little DVD included with a pizza. Probably when I was like 10 or something. And I was like, this movie's weird. And I, and I really liked it, though. The best part of the movie is the middle kind of part in hell. The depiction of hell is so uh, weird and Alex Winters, if you, people haven't seen Freaked, they should definitely check that out. Uh, and you can see Alex Winters' influence in this. He even plays the grandma in one of his own hells under a bunch of makeup. I remember you saying, Connor, that um, Alex Winters really was getting more interested in like behind the camera and behind the scenes stuff. And so like he really wanted to play like the grandma under like a million tons of makeup and do a whole bunch of other stuff too. Yeah, and he specifically liked that kind of stuff, which you, I get if you watch Freaked is, is just full of people under prosthetics doing really goofy 
kind of broad uh, stuff. I, the first one's good and fun, and there's like certain jokes in the first one that are really, really funny, but it's definitely kind of a flat-looking film. This movie is like a much more, I think, cinematic uh, movie, certainly of the three. The one negative is that with that yes and thing you were talking about, Anne, I think the third act starts to slow down a little bit, kind of gets a little rickety <laughs> towards the end, but it's it's so fun, and you are going so fast in it at, at a certain point that you're kind of okay with like, oh, uh, well, you know, it still it still lands it, but it's not as smooth of a ride the whole way through. It's a fun kind of bumpy. Watching Bill and Ted's Bogus Journey again was actually uh, helpful to me trying to be rigorous in my truthful reaction to it, which is I actually could see much clearer this time why a lot of people don't like it. It's so weird and its rhythms are so strange that I think it's fair to say all this might not be the way to put it. The people who liked the sincerity of Bill and Ted's excellent adventure, which was here the stakes, as goofy as it is, they get the historical figures, they do the report, they save the day. You know, when you're looking for a very easy, straightforward, fun ride, and instead you get Bill and Ted's bogus journey, which is totally weird. And you're not someone who likes weird or irony or very like, I don't even know what the word would be. And I thought, you know, the nearest analog I can think of is I prefer Gremlins 2 to Gremlins. Having not seen Gremlins 1, I did get a lot of Gremlins 2 vibes from Bogus Journey. Gremlins 2 is just nuts. It's really ironic and really funny. And it's played as an out and out comedy. And there are like hilarious bits in it that you could see an audience was like, I was coming for another Gremlins where the gremlins like really are dangerous and threaten the town. And instead you get a Roddy McDowell gremlin who's like, we all want what everybody wants, you know, to read Susan Sontag and just not. And you'd be like, what the F is this? When I saw that, I was like, I stood up and clapped. So I guess what I'm trying to say is I think you have to be on that absurdist frequency. I've told the Conan O'Brien story about the bit on Conan. I was dating a, a wonderful woman in my late twenties, early thirties. And sometimes at night we would watch Conan when Conan still had the David Letterman slot. He was really absurd in those days. One of his characters, just a bit they would do, a treadmill would come out with a gorilla in a nurse's outfit and it would have a lap band around it and it would be doing this and they'd play the 1980s song Morning Angel and it would just go across the stage and disappear. And whenever that would happen, I would lose it and I'd fall on the ground laughing and Heyoon would be like, why is that funny? Why, why are you laughing? What did that mean? Because there was no story to it. There was no explanation to it. It made no sense. And I was like, that's the point. It makes no sense whatsoever. That's what makes it funny. And I had a realization that you either like that kind of absurdist humor or you're like, this is a waste of my time. And I think that there's a lot of absurdist humor and bogus journey. I actually want to say that I think surreal humor, Dadaist humor, absurdist humor, it works because it actually is doing something. I don't think it's empty calories at all. You know, I think there's actually a lot going on in Bogus Journey that's great, but you have to have a taste for the absurd and the surreal. It's visions of heaven and hell are genuinely interesting. Not in like a jokey, like the theological implications are staggering, but like a, a genuinely like decent reflection of like a creative version of those realms, especially the way hell is sort of divided up into these individual torments. It's such a unique 
it reminds me of that in Mean Streets when he's talking about the pain of hell and talking about the fire versus like the emptiness and how there's like different types of torture to be had, essentially. Yeah, I actually one of those is my favorite bits, how like both Bill and Ted's like tortures are really mundane, but in an interesting way, like Bill's is getting kissed by or his like creepy grandmother and then Ted's is that like the Easter Bunny's angry at him because he stole his brother's chocolate. Yeah. <laughs> it seems just like it's a manifestation of guilt. Yeah, and that's great that that's the worst thing that Ted did in his life. Yeah, it's always yeah. His, his like greatest, like it, it reminded me of, um, if anybody has like seen or listened to the cast album of uh, the Book of Mormon uh, musical, in act one they set up that like, oh yeah, all Mormons have the spooky Mormon hell dream where we, we we're imagine being tormented forever because of all of our sins or whatever. And then um, in act two, the second song is spooky Mormon hell dream, which is like genuinely the hardest I've laughed at anything in my life. And it's all kicked off by like one of the guys singing how like when he was five, he like stole a donut from the kitchen, but blamed it on his brother. And that was the first time I dreamed of hell. And now I'm back. <laughs> it's like so illustrative of like how innocent those characters are that like these are the worst torments that they can think of. These are their greatest sins. Totally. There are these fun plant and payoffs in the movie that are actually like George Carlin's in the beginning of the movie and in this hilarious utopia future that Joss Ackland, who would play the bad guy in like Lethal Weapon 2 oh, yeah. or The Apple, if anyone remembers, although in The Apple he plays God, but in Lethal Weapon 2, he's like diplomatic immunity. He was always the European who would play the European bad guy. And then in this movie, he's some bad guy from the future. And we see George Carlin and then he's not in the movie. And then we we meet Pam Greer, who's heading up Battle of the Bands. And then at the very end of the movie, right when you're like, whatever happened to George Carlin? Pam Greer turns out to be George Carlin in disguise. <laughs> in a good visual gag where he pulls off her, her face and then it turns back to him and he's bigger. Like the stuff he's wearing doesn't really make sense. And he's like, I've been here all along. And you're like, who else would have let you into the Battle of the Bands? Even that is satisfying. And you're like, word, Rufus. Yeah, it's true. I'm a huge Bill and Ted fan. My friend group growing up were massive. I don't know. Is there a word for Bill and Ted fandom? We were big uh, Wild Stallions fans. We'll put it that way. And to the point, like, you know, when you're a teenager and you you get into something pop culture wise and it becomes your, in, in, at least in my friend group, it would become our personality. We were air guitar and we were very into like 80s rock and it was a goofy good time. And so I have such the loveliest memories associated with these things. And during the pandemic, I revisited them all in preparation for the third movie. And I adore them all because they're all completely different weird things. I have such a, an emotional attachment to Excellent Adventure that I don't know if I'd say Bogus Journey is better, but I think it's as good because it is its own beast and exists as this completely separate bizarre thing that makes complete sense. If you said it's your favorite, I would be like, you're correct. Because it is so different than Excellent Adventure that I, I think that makes sense. Like if it fits your style better but also doesn't feel like it compromises in that i think that's like a wild success that they pulled off in this because when you pitch this it's crazy but do you feel that bill and ted's excellent adventure would be the more classically good of the films i yeah i guess if i had to put that onto it i i would probably say that i think bogus journeys swings a little bit more niche but it's better for it i guess they're both wrapped in fantasy but you pitch a time travel fantasy and then one where they go to hell like it just feels like a pretty crazy jump but it's the type of jump that i like it keeps it fresh where 
you know, you get a lot of, especially in comedy realm sequels that feel like they're just rehashes. And this one instead brings in the Grim Reaper for them to play games against. And I don't think there's a funnier line delivery than, I think they're playing chess and they're like, best three out of five. And he's like, damn straight. (laughs) And what do you think about Face the Music? I also really liked Face the Music. I was in like, you know, a weird space during that era of the pandemic, but it's one of those things that surface level shouldn't exist. And I wasn't like especially excited, but then I did a watch party over the internet with the friends that this was our friend group for. It's kind of the same thing that it feels a little more traditional, but also is doing enough interesting stuff and has enough bits and is short enough where it kind of sings it. It sings correctly and it has the impossible. I think Bogus Journey does this too. There's like this impossible ass to, you know, Bill and Tedder, Wild Stallions are like in the future, the thing. And so you have to like have a moment that lets them be the thing. And it's such a weird thing to have to put onto film. The only thing I think's ever really pulled that off is, is Tenacious D because the bit is that they can't remember. And then in the movie when you see that the moment that it happens it's like not it's a it's a great song but it's like not a great song but i mean them playing god gave rock and roll the year what's better than that so i haven't seen face the music and i want to i want to but it does that weird evil dead like army of darkness thing where it slightly revises the movie that came before it because ostensibly we saw the song at the end of bogus journey I mean, that's what you're led to believe was that there it is. There's the song that brings utopia to the world. How do they explain and face the music that that wasn't the song? Did they just say, hey, that wasn't the song? No, from what I remember, and I, I'll be honest, I didn't revisit it, but it's essentially that they did the song and they changed things and now they're just sort of old and out of touch and are kind of forgotten to a degree. And so they get visited by the future again, and it's sort of this. Now they need to do a new song that can save life, as, as the world knows it, I guess. And so they sort of go back to the excellent journey idea of with their daughters, and they go get people with the phone booth again. And so it sort of combines elements of the movies, but it's super earnest, which I, I like. I like when a comedy's earnest and doesn't wink at you. Like, it just accepts that it's, it is what it is. I think it kind of works. I, if I had to rank them, I guess I would put it as the third, but... There's enough greatness in it that I think it hits it hits right. It's just it's just a very joyful experience. It's good that we have Edwin because a lot of people don't like Bogus Journey. And yet it seems like four out of the five folks here are Bogus Journey fans, aficionados. I think it's interesting to note because there's a lot of common wisdom, I think, at a certain point, the idea that sequels are always inferior. But I think that like going back, I can at least think of like the Bond movies. And that's like the 60s. That's 60 years ago. And you can probably go back further where I think there's lots of clear indication where that's not the case. And it always struck me as weird. I don't think it's quite so much the common wisdom now, but I remember a time in which generally people always sort of held that opinion, seemingly. This is, there's a certain point where this is like a vibes or semantics difference here. But I wonder if the difference between, say, your example of Bond or of other things is that that was a series. Uh, like there were things that they were drawing from but like the James Bond movies were a series of movies so like that has for whatever reason a different vibe to it than a movie an original movie sequel if that makes any sense for sure but I bet there are examples of that going further back though too oh yeah no I, I see your point and I and I agree with your point I mean I've, I'm someone who's you know enjoyed many a sequel and like argued for them even as a child I do wonder if like that is how the contradiction would be explained 
emotionally by people. By nature, unless it was a Lord of the Rings, which is a great example where it was always intended to be four books, if you count The Hobbit. Two Towers was, you know, meant to be the interstitial book. That's a different kind of thing. Or, you know, Harry Potter could be another way. You know, like clearly Prisoner of Azkaban was meant to be a hinge book or, or what have you. But a lot of times a movie's made and then suddenly it's a huge hit. And it's this, I guess, for lack of a better word, a cynical money grab, which is like, oh, that made so much money. As long as we get the original cast together and the same title and it's sort of the same thing, then we're at least going to make, I know there's a mathematical formula to it. We're at least going to make like 70% of what we made on the first film. And a lot of times I think people can feel that if it's not a really committed sequel. These days, sequels come baked in. You know, you're when you're watching a movie, there's going to be 10 more of these. (laughs) I feel like that's kind of the distinction is where when the sequel becomes like, oh, let's do that now because the first one did it. Whereas the better sequels are the ones where they were already planned as a bigger story. And the first one is just to kind of create the characters so that you can tell the greater story without a lot of the backstory taking up the most of the movie. I mean, like I think of uh, Creed, I just recently saw the the Creed trilogy or all of them. And I felt that Creed 2 was better than the first one. The first one just pretty much just set up the characters, but Creed 2 kind of delved into like what the stakes really were when he had to fight the son of the man that killed his father. Creed 3, actually, I feel was kind of the, the money grab where it's like, oh, let's uh, let's make another Creed movie. How are we going to figure it out? There's also the case of uh, like Top Gun, Maverick, which was a legacy sequel. It wasn't I mean, it wasn't, I mean, there's legacy sequels where it's like the new class. It's something that happened and then we're going to take this basic concept and kind of contemporalize it or whatever. I feel like that was a solid film, although it was very derivative. I mean, they do, they basically do the trench run. I hadn't even thought of Top Gun Maverick when I was making my list of sequels that are better than the original, but I absolutely think Top Gun Maverick is better than the first one. Granted, I almost didn't see Maverick because Top Gun 1 is genuinely one of my most hated movies of all time. I, I cannot stand Top Gun. So you're not going to be with us for Lisey's birthday? Oh, she's showing Top, are you going to show Top Gun? Oh, yeah, I, Top Gun and Top Gun 2. Oh, here's the thing. I will come for Top Gun. Maverick because Top Gun Maverick is incredible. I loved it. I was shocked at how much I loved it. I think that one kicks the first one's ass in basically every possible way while still kind of just also being the first movie, but in a much better and like more palatable to meet my tastes anyway uh, way. There's also that sequel and it actually hasn't happened a lot. I can only name a few series where it actually takes them a few movies to find the formula. And then actually it's the third or the fourth or the fifth one that really hits the golden era. And I think the big example would be Mission Impossible. Interestingly, by Mission Impossible 4, Ghost Protocol, you're kind of like, wow, this one's actually better than the first three. And then four, five, and six are all, in my opinion, like dynamite. And I like, and, and no offense, Weirdly, because they went in such a different direction in two, Mission Impossible 2, and they all admitted there was a writer's strike or something and like they never had the script. And so I think they all felt uh, we got to get back on our game because we almost sort of blew the franchise. And then another example would be like James Bond. It's sort of from Russia with love and Goldfinger that finds the formula. And 
internationally, a great example is Zatoichi. I love the Japanese Zatoichi films, which is he's like this blind gambler masseuse who's also this like master <laughs> fighter who avenges the poor. It's like very, it's great. And it's not until the third, fourth or fifth Zatoichi movie that they really figure out the formula. Uh, any other? I told Connor this. I think Blade Runner 2049 deserves everything that Blade Runner normal has. Blade Runner 2049 is incredible. Walked into that one, uh, not liking Blade Runner, but unlike Top Gun 1, respecting Blade Runner. Like, truly, like, I, I get it. Not not 100% my, my favorite movie of all time, but, like, I get it. And then Blade Runner 2049, I found to be, like, art. I think it is beautiful. It explores the world and the questions uh, of the Blade Runner world uh, much more interestingly for me than the first one did. And part of that is because it's building off of a base. Like it is taking the questions in the world that Blade Runner set up and like being able to expand upon them and then like explore that world and how it would have developed in, over those years and so on and so forth. But I thought, yeah, everything in Blade Runner 2049 just kicks Blade Runner's ass. I still prefer the first one. And I like 2049. I want to go on the record that I'm somebody who really likes 2049. I think the story, you know, there's really not a story in the first Blade Runner. In my opinion, you're just getting lost in a great premise and a dream, which I'm totally happy to get lost in. But there's really storytelling in 2049. And that sequence where his um, operating system, for lack of a better word, brings home that woman and they have that weird threesome. I My jaw dropped in the theater watching that one. I, one of the great sequences of the last few years, in my opinion. The one thing that I will give OG Blade Runner over 2049 is Roy Batty. Like, incredible character, incredible performer, incredible antagonist. 2049 doesn't have that. 2049 also isn't trying to have that, so I, I give it kind of a pass on that one, but like, there's no, yeah, Roy Batty just... Uh, kind of brings my enjoyment of Blade Runner normal up so many notches. And that's like the one thing I wish 2049 had. That's a great call is also the original Blade Runner just has some gonzo performances from like Daryl Hannah and Rucker Hauer and Edward James almost. Like Rucker Hauer wrote uh, Roy Batty's dying monologue, which is like for me, the scene of the movie. It's actually some of the only memorable actual dialogue in the yeah. movie. I have seen the fires off the moons of Jupiter. Everything will be lost to time like tears and rain is like, whoa, whoa, yeah, literally <laughs> like un unironically like art. I've been fighting for this movie for a long time and you won't show it, Craig. And that's to me is die hard with the vengeance. You, Craig. Want to know why it's so better than the first one? One, it's got Sam Jackson. It takes place in New York. You can't run, Craig. Die Hard with a Vengeance is superior. It is one of the best sequels in the Die Hard franchise. Those are two different statements. So I don't care. I don't care. It's got it Sam is not Jackson. To the first they brought one, back John McIntyre. It has one of the best villains of all time by Jeremy Irons. It has one of the most fantastic heist sequence of all time. And and his build up is so badass it is great sam jackson bruce willis are two of the greatest combos of all time F you man oh, you just don't get it man craig is holding up a sign that says no he doesn't understand man he doesn't understand man somewhat inspired by edwin's uh tirade here and then also bringing it back to uh, uh something we talked about earlier with like why are or were sequels generally maligned and like the idea that like you know, a lot of sequels are just kind of doing the first one over again, and that's how we kind of got to that general, the common not wisdom of, like, sequels aren't very good. You know, the best sequels are the ones that, like, have it, even if they're like, all right, 
the story wrapped up in the first one, there's at least a new take. You can see that with Aliens versus Alien. Alien is a actually my favorite of the franchise, and it is a rock-solid haunted house movie where the haunted house is a spaceship. Aliens is a war movie. It's structurally very similar to Alien, but they take it in a new direction and they explore new themes using the alien and et cetera, et cetera. I won't say it's a better movie than the first two, but I, in terms of pure enjoyment, I'm an Alien 3 assembly cut defender. I think Alien 3 assembly cut rules. How do you see the assembly cut? Oh, my friend has the DVD. Dan Fincher has nothing to do with the assembly cut. I mean, he has disowned the movie, but like it's his cut. There's the assembly and the theatrical. What is it about the assembly cut that makes it for you like uh, worthy? First of all, it's not trying to be Alien 1 again. It is just doing something completely different. Like gothic horror. Yes, it's doing gothic horror, but it's also doing religious horror. One of the things I really, and this is maybe it's because I was raised Catholic. I, you know, I'm someone psychoanalyze me here. No, we Catholics avoid psychoanalysis. Didn't you know that? <laughs> uh, we do that all of ourselves. Um, <laughs> I think it's kind of interesting how it's telling a reverse Mary story where Ellen Ripley's the only woman in this like uh, prison colony full of men and she discovers that she is pregnant by a basically through like an, a horrible divine miracle because like there's no way the alien could have survived the aliens. Like there's no way it got on that ship, but it did and it happened anyway. And now she like has to deal with the fact that she's carrying this thing that a lot of horrible people want to come into the world and she's got to get rid of it. She's got to stop this. What a great call. I think it's a bad sequel to Aliens. I will just say that right out. As a sequel to the previous movie, it's bad and insulting. As a movie on its own and the end of Ellen Ripley's story, I think it's great. It's not a perfect movie by any means, but I, I think it swings and I really love like where it tries to go. I think what you're saying, AJ, about stuff getting out of the way, I think that's why like Spider-Man 2 is as good as it is. I was thinking about superhero movies a lot. And a lot of times for me, the second or whatever superhero movie will be stronger because the first one has to do the origin. And then the second one can sort of, and I said this before, so I'm not going to linger on it, but it's such a good um, meeting of what makes the Spider-Man character so interesting. And Sam Raimi's like narrative obsessions in terms of having a character who's just being beat up the whole movie. Uh, I think Batman Returns is another good example of that. Similar with, it kind of allows Tim Burton and to just find that intersection of what makes Batman interesting and what he's interested in. And just get his freak on. Completely agree with everything Connor's saying. Spider-Man 2 is great. Batman Returns is just like a psychosexual nightmare movie for children. I love that. It's insane. Complete with S&M McDonald's Happy Meal toys. For the youth. <laughs> to be fair, I think this of a lot of, there's a lot of, a lot of superhero sequels that I think are better than the first that a lot of people disagree with me on. Because I think for a lot of people, they like the premise of the superhero. And then when they get to the actual, the sequels will be like either goofier or kind of repetitive in maybe certain ways. But I, I will like the way they refine, like, you know, again, these are not popular takes, but I like the second Wonder Woman a little bit more. I know it's pretty commonly derided. I probably like this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, wow. Uh, That's the worst movie ever. I like the the second Amazing Spider-Man more than the first one because I was sort of able to accept like, okay, this is this dumb Riverdale version of Spider-Man. On a more genuine thing, I, I like Age of Ultron more than the first Avengers. I was going to say, sorry to interrupt, but Connor and I were the Age of Ultron's enjoyers. And isn't um, Captain America 2 Winter Soldier usually considered better than the original? Yeah. It usually typically. is. I'm, again, a weirdo here. I actually 
like, so having not rewatched these movies in a very long time, on a personal enjoyment level, I ranked Captain America one higher than Winter Soldier. Uh, I think mostly because I didn't like the color palette, but uh, Winter Soldier is like classically yeah. considered better. I have had fights with people about how much better I think Guardians of the Galaxy 2 is than Guardians of the Galaxy 1. I agree with that, too. And part of it, Connor, going off your point, is that one of the reasons I think Guardians 2 is so good is that the first one did all the the setup work, the establishing work. And I mean, I've said this before, I, I, I genuinely hated Guardians 1. It was my most maybe hated movie of like 2014 or whatever, which uh, yeah, I probably should have seen more movies that year. But Guardians 2 felt like James Gunn found my Twitter account and was like, okay, I'll fix it. I'll stop complaining. It addressed everything I felt the first movie was completely unaware of about itself. How Star-Lord is like a lovable misogynist man-child who like needs to grow up. How his and Yondu's relationship made no sense. How like, it's insane that like Drax doesn't, you know, be able to like have really a relationship with people. How like Rocket Raccoon is great in the first one. So no notes there, they just really expanded upon that one. Uh, but like how Gamora and Nebula's relationship made no sense because they, they're supposed to be like effectively sisters who are raised by the same abusive monster, but they treat each other like strangers. And the same with Yondu and Peter, how like, even if Yondu is Peter's abusive dad, like he's still his dad. Those two act like they don't know each other. I, I love you, Anne, but I think sure. <laughs> go ahead, go ahead. we'll find detail into Guardians yeah. of the Galaxy 1 and 2 right now. But Guardians 2 did feel like everything that was underbaked in Guardians 1 was then made the point of Guardians 2. Another one where I was like moved to tears by the end of the movie. I think those are also examples of the filmmakers having more like of a voice. Just another thing I thought going off this series that take a few to find their stride is Fast and Furious series. Because like probably the best Fast and Furious in my opinion is the Brazil one, which I think is five. That's another one where it old, and I like Fast and Furious 1 actually, but it took a little while. My favorite type of sequel, having just seen the new Evil Dead, is I, I love when a movie plays in the universe, but it gets to have its own rules where it feels like you're at home, but it feels completely unhinged and different. I think that's such a fun way to operate. The best pieces of like these cinematic universes we get are when they feel singular and connected where it feels like someone got to do what they want to do, but it also feels comforting because you kind of, you know, the core of it. The movies I picked that I think are sequels that are superior to some degree, because some of them aren't there. Like I think the Before Trilogy is perfect, but Sunset's my favorite, so I say the sequel. But again in that, if you told me any three of those movies were your favorite, you would be right. My bias aside, I think, because there's a different time in your life that they each hit differently. Before Sunset is my favorite, too. And I wonder if it's because the stakes, I mean, the stakes in Before Midnight are probably the highest in some ways. And yet the stakes in Before Sunset, it's so much a thing about making a major decision from one period of your life to another. As a teenager in college, Sunrise was my favorite because it was this like hopeless romantic energy of connection and it was so beautiful. And then Sunset puts it into perspective and makes it honest that that didn't quite work, but it meant everything too. Like, I think there's this weird thing where sometimes the feelings we feel when we're younger are led us to believe that they weren't true. Like, well, you don't know what love is in high school or whatever, but I think Sunset kind of feels like they were real and things don't always work out the same way, but they, they get to. So Sunset in my 30s feels like the thing that I want, which is like this connection that, that didn't go away. Just a side note, you should tell Rachel she got her wish. Marta and I are having a fourth child. <laughs> She'll have many questions. I will ask you. <laughs> Different podcast time for that, yeah. but just I'll let, let her know. know. Let be her stoked. know the dream. The dream is real. <laughs> You'll be the uh, the guinea pig for the four children project. I don't know if this is a hot take. Mamma Mia, here we go again. Superior to Mamma Mia. 
it's a retread, but you bring in like some superior singers and keep the energy alive. And it's sort of this perfect, like they knew exactly what they were doing when they went into that. And I think it's this beautiful thing. The other one I pick that's maybe off the beaten path, I think Babe Pig in the City is superior. I love Babe Pig in the City, though. George Miller's got something on sequels. He seems to know what he's doing. I don't know if we talked about Fury Road, but the man builds and then he's like, what if type of thing? One other side thing, Craig, I'd just be curious. I also think Human Condition 3 is the best chunk of Human Condition. I don't know if people rank Human Conditions outside of themselves, not as a full set, but I think about that sometimes as a as a, a true offshoot. The Human Condition, the like 600 minute epic i think it's like six film thing but typically if it screens it screens all at once and you suffer through a day with it it's a great day but russian filmmaker right yeah and the one i won't speak to because it's too obvious paddington too but i'm not going to waste any more time on that it's it's fact it's but it's great i mean we got to throw them all in so people can see it's a masterpiece i had a friend who uh last year when we hung out he hadn't seen paddington do before and i suggested we watch it feeling somewhat risky because my whenever i suggest movies it doesn't tend to go well for whatever group i'm with uh (laughs) Then at the end of the movie, he's my best friend and he's like very snarky and cantankerous. He was like, well, that lived up to the hype. I've no, I have not had an experience where that wasn't the case, even if it's not your favorite thing. Even it broke Edwin. And I think that's a testament to to Paddington, too. Because Edwin gave you and Lisey, I think, a lot of grief for a long time. And then last year, uh, Edwin logged it twice. June 4th, four stars in a heart. June 17th, four and a half stars in a heart with the text. I think the whole world needs Paddington. Uh, that's just, that's Edwin in a nutshell. It's like when I showed Edwin uh, the notebook and he was just bagging and then suddenly he was invested and he wanted Marsden gone. And when Gosling and McAdams <laughs> kissed in the rain, Edwin pumped his fists in the air like this. And he said, finally, finally. And then when James Gardner and Jenna Rollins died in bed, Edwin teared up and turned away from me. And he said, I didn't see that coming. And then he hit his face. Edwin can never run away from that. He can never run away from his genuine reactions to the notebook, ever. Pop culture and final thoughts. Guys, talk about anything you want that has nothing to do with what we just talked about. AMC's interview with the vampire was the best television show of the last year. Please watch it. It's incredible. I saw Bo's Afraid. That was a, that was a, a weird, very weird movie. Um... <laughs> That's what I've heard. Yeah, yeah, it's it's like it's almost Charlie Kaufman like. No, it, absolutely, it's very it's like Charlie Kaufman while having like a, a, a panic attack. Is it weird, good, weird, bad, or weird? I'm still trying to figure out how I feel about it. Weird polarizing. It's gonna be you will either love or hate it. I think it really depends on what you're going into it. Like, do you like movies that make sense and like have a good <laughs> ending, or do you like movies where you're like constantly trying to figure out what's real, if anything is real? And it may not end very well. I think my my X meets Y for Bo is Afraid is like Ari Aster has made a movie that is what if the Wizard of Oz was also After Hours? And horny. Oh, wow. You guys are making me do a lot of Keanu Reeves woes today. I also saw Bo is Afraid and I'm in the camp that I really dug it. I don't know if there's like a ton to think about about it, but in the experience of it while it was happening, I loved it. It's very long and you feel that sometimes and other times you don't. Like the first 45 minutes of that movie is like a director at like peak game and then it sort of gets a little interesting and there's some great stuff and there's some weird stuff, but it is a pretty wild opener of someone who got to do whatever they wanted. And I imagine that set was just sort of them being like, we can do this. No one's going to stop us. And that's, I think that's kind of cool. Uh, I'm a busy, I'm a busy, busy, busy guy, you know, getting posters, you know, I've been buying a lot of posters lately. It's been insane. And, I, and I'm not stopping. I almost bought a hundred dollar, uh, 
French Grande poster of Lucio Fucci, the Beyond, because I thought the Alamo Draft Hall was going to show up, but nope, it's somewhere in Nebraska, so I saved me some money on that one. I displayed some of my posters at the Alamo Draft House in downtown. I got Prophecy up, Collision Course up, Manhunter, and also Tightrope, Deer Hunter, and The Hidden. And probably tomorrow, I'm going to go by and drop off more, which is my little Mother Days kind of like theme, you know, uh, Albert Brooks's mother, Mommy Dearest, what I just got the other day, uh, Serial Mom. And also, I, I bought this cool Richard Gere poster. It's an advanced one sheet, and it says Richard Gere and his weird 80s look fade with a gun. It says No Mercy, which is like, oh, okay, that's pretty cool. It's busy. If we ever need to just have, like, content because we're all off, I'm just going to do a side podcast called The List. And I'm just going to hit on a mic and be like, Edwin, name all the movies you saw this week and everything you bought. We'll have 40 minutes of content. Also, one last thing. I am going to get that Elephant Man poster because Alex told me it's in the booth. And I just gave me a sign. I said, you know what? I have to do it. I have to grab it before someone takes it. So I'm going to get that damn poster that's going up in the in the poster case. So Who, who asked? No one's stopping me, mother. No right. stopping me! You can't stop me! You, Not Edwin. even a Connor, stop pop culture, me. final thoughts. You're right. Nobody is stopping you. Yeah! Can, can we mute him? I got into this board game called Root. It's a board game. It's asymmetrical warfare uh, where you play little critters in the forest. It's kind of like Redwall, if you've ever read those books. Each little faction works differently. You got little capitalist cats. There's some monarchist birds, uh, a libertarian raccoon. It's really cute and fun, and there's a good digital version you can get on Steam, and I don't know if it's anywhere else, maybe, probably. But yeah, it's really fun, and I've been enjoying playing it a lot. And yeah, you can find me at twitch.tv slash and watch me play D&D. Tuesday evenings at twitch.tv slash nerdhala. We did a trivia night last night. Trivia sorted with Kyle Ayers. I've never done a trivia night. And I actually thought, Connor, if you're ever down, you want to bring some people. I thought you would have loved it. Uh, we had a better than expected turnout. Uh, so I'm grateful for that. But really, that's because comedian Kyle Ayers, who used to be on Conan, and you can check him out. He hosts it. He brought special guest host Dave Holmes, who is a very famous MTV VJ and has a podcast, Homophilia and stuff. And they were just like riffing the whole time and very, very funny. And everybody did team. And then they had very funny categories and then you could come up with your own answers. So it was a little bit like balderdash with each thing you could do. Like what the, one of the questions was, what's Jared Leto's like email password? And uh, people just came up with really funny stuff. So I will just say to people, Kyle and I are talking, but we were we were happy. And uh, I think we're going to try to get this going once a month. If you guys are in L.A. and you just want to drink and make teams and community and have a good time and meet movie-minded people. It sort of embodied our community ethos in a way I hadn't fully anticipated because I've never done trivia night things. We did it because we always like to try new things. And uh, so I just want to thank Kyle and Dave and everyone who came. And in fact, one of the team names was Bo Bridges is, is afraid. <laughs> and I was like, man, these guys are clever. Then we had Citizen Brain. And the citizens came and I was like, whoa, this is definitely a trivia night crowd. They're really good. And then like, I just didn't have their sense of humor. And one of the questions was, um, what movies aren't really about Jesus, but you could make an argument that they are. And I was like, just a sincere answer. I was like, oh, E.T. E.T. is the Jesus story because he dies and he comes back and he appears to the young boys in a white shroud with a beating red heart. But then somebody was like the Jaws series because he keeps coming back again and again and again. Again. And I was like, word, that's funny. Anyway, that's my my pop culture is just being in on a trivia night. That was a whole new subculture I had never been in on. And I want to thank returning special guests. 
Ann Mortensen Agnew, writer, anime extraordinaire, AJ Greer, who is doing our Instagram marketing and giving us ideas and moral support and just anchoring the team. AJ, it's wonderful to have you back and uh, our whole team as a whole. Podcast 151 uh, will be our Palm Springs recap. So when we come back, we'll be talking Palm Springs where we, God willing, I will say uh, we're recording this before and as we were recording it, I got confirmation in photos. The prints are all in the booth. Alex Olivier drove out to Palm Springs. So we are showing the master Titanic in 2001 on 70. So we will be just talking about the weekend and what it was like and our thoughts on 70 yet again. Uh, join us for that. As always, our podcast was edited by Chief Creative Content Officer Connor Lloyd Cruz. And you can find out everything we're doing at secretmovieclub.com. Get tickets at Eventbrite and uh, write us at community at secretmovieclub.com. All right, guys. Thank you so much. I will see you next time. Love you, family. Thank you. This was great. Connor. Peaches, 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 peaches